0: Hello and welcome to RegMedNet. I'm your podcast host, Sarah Raymond, and I'm the digital editor of RegMedNet. In this podcast, supported by Sex and Biotechnologies, I'll be joined by Steve Elliman of Orbson Therapeutics and Stephen Thompson of Sex and Biotechnologies, which is now part of Biolife Solutions. Today, we'll have the pleasure of discussing the challenges of variability in producing cell therapies and how using consistent reagents from reliable manufacturers can tackle this problem will also be touching on the importance of gaining and maintaining trustworthy partners early on in your cell therapy journey, and how this can influence the success of your final product. It was a pleasure to speak with the two of them, so without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast.
1: Hi, uh, good morning. My name's Steve Elliman. I'm Chief Scientist, Founding Scientist at Orbson Therapeutics. Orbson Therapeutics is a stromal cell therapy, a biotechnology company Based here in the west coast of Ireland, in a, in a town called Galway, and we also have manufacturing operations in in Birmingham in the UK. Specifically, Orbison has um, over the last decade developed an antibody purified uh, stromal cell therapy, an allergenic stromal cell therapy, and what that means is we've we've used a, a specific uh, novel patented antibody to identify and purify stromal cells from bone marrow tissue, from your hip, and from umbilical cord tissue that's discarded after healthy births. And we can purify those cells and expand them in a closed automated fashion to develop a therapy. Uh, And we call our specific therapy that's purified with our antibody called OrbCell. And right now uh, we have a number of phase one, two clinical trials that are ongoing uh, across the UK and Europe in kind of three broad disease areas. And we have phase one trial, phase one, two trial running in ARDS, which is acute lung injury, uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And that's a syndrome that develops in people who've developed COVID or or pneumonia or or flu related pneumonias. And they end up in intensive care facilities on a ventilator. And we're about halfway through a phase two trial there. And that trial is called Realist. And we have another trial called Nefstrom which is a, a pan-European and UK trial treating patients with type 2 diabetes, secondary chronic kidney disease. Um, and we're treating patients in Italy, the UK and Ireland in the NESTROM study. And we're also treating patients in a, a series of autoimmune disease studies called Merlin and Polarize, where we're looking about halfway through that study where we're treating patients with autoimmune liver disease, Crohn's disease and, and lupus nephritis. We're just coming to the end of the Nefstrom study, and um, we're looking to, to present our, our clinical data from the Nefstrom study at the American Society for Nephrology meeting uh, this November. And we're excited to, to, to present that uh, to the wider community because the, the data looks interesting. And I'll pause there.
2: Um, so, my name is Stephen Thompson, I'm Vice President of Sales at Sexton Biotechnologies, and we're now part of BioLife Solutions. So a little bit of a background on Sexton. We were a spin-out from an incubated accelerator called Cook Tech. We were really focused on developing tools specifically for cell therapy manufacturing. Um, a couple of different platforms we launched. We had our cell performance platform that was a, a range of human platelet lysates for expansion of gamma stem cells, T-cells, etc., We also had our processing and handling platform that was largely around a closed system cryogenic storage vial called Celsius, and then we began building out some other automation around that. So, sort of high throughput fill system, um, fluid management system for things like closed fill finish unit operations, and then in September two thousand and twenty-one, we were fully acquired by one of our strategic investors, um, Biolife, and those guys are continuing to add new tools and technologies which can overcome some of the challenges people are facing in cell therapy manufacturing as we scale up.
0: Perfect, thank you. So the focus of this feature is reagent consistency and the importance of having high quality reagents in your cell therapeutics. So my next question will be, why are consistent reagents and standardized protocols paramount to the success of cell therapeutics?
2: I can start if you want, Steve. So I think cell so, therapy manufacturing, um, particularly in the autologous space, has a really high level of input variability. So unlike CHO or HeLa cell lines, um, where we've got largely defined parameters to yield optimal growth, autologous start materials are highly variable. and um, You've got relapsed, refractory patients having a CAR-T therapy as their second or third in-line therapy. And so I think one of the, the key things for me is that it's really imperative we limit any additional variability in that process that could be acquired through non-standardized raw materials or or protocols. And I think to do that, one of the things we really need to start to do is understand which sort of um, critical um, parameters affect the
1: quality attributes of the product. Yeah, and I you know, I've probably echoed that the major difference between uh, biologics, pharmacologics and, and, and cell and gene therapies is the start material. And that's whether you're coming from a, an autologous background or an allogeneic, you know, endpoint. These tissues are, are derived from human donors and the human variability in autologous and allogeneic setting is is always going to be a challenge. It's wonderful that we've been able to harness the therapeutic value of these these human cells and tissues. But because of that inherent variability in the the human starting tissue, we really do need highly standardized um, reagents to minimize adding variability on top of variability. So uh, I'd say 10 years ago, this was a significant challenge um, because we were working in a setting um, where GMP, if you like, reagents were thin on the ground. And our starting materials for growth of these materials were GMP grade fetal calf serum, platelet lysates and define media. really were things that just didn't really exist. And one of the things that's enabling these things to move to the clinic so, so quickly now is that switch, is that understanding within the reagent and technology communities, the market will be there for them if they buy in and, and produce reagents for this market. So 10 years ago when we started, and we were lucky enough to, to have really good engagements with regulators across Europe. And in fact, it was you know German and Italian regulators that highlighted to us that we might want to move away from fetal calf serums and towards human platelet lysates to, to kind of head off that potential variability um, that would be perceived at market. So we're grateful to the regulators at the time that they pointed us in that direction because it has you know, led to a more consistent product, not just for us, but for, for other manufacturers as well.
0: Great. So you've both pinpointed variability as one of the main challenges. Are there any specific elements of variability that you could single out that is a great challenge when working with reagents and how we can tackle this?
2: I think as Steve just said, a few years back, it was really difficult to sort of get the reagents you needed in those GMP compliant forms. And I think there's still a are leaning towards a lot of people at the research stage or the process development stage selecting reagents that are not GMP compliant or not really thinking about, is this reagent going to be available at scale if I get to commercial manufacturing? So I think that's really thinking about at the early stage, what reagents mm-hmm. are going to meet those quality regulatory and performance expectations as you move through. That's really key because transition at a later stage, obviously that's going to be a new product that's coming into your process That can result in a lot of variability manufacturing compared to that initial process i think steve obviously mentioned a few biological materials there so things like human ab serum fetal bovine serum hpl the other thing is really thinking about what impact does that lots of lot variability have on your process and what measures are you going to put in place to mitigate that and really understand how a different product composition is going to affect your product characteristics
1: yeah no yeah echoing that i mean i think the biggest, the biggest challenge we've seen, if you take the two major components that we use, which is growth factors, as a GMP growth factors, as one starting point, and one of the things we noticed early on was lot-to-lot variability in efficacy of those biologics, those growth factors that we use in our manufacturing process, and lot-to-lot variability because they were produced in in bacteria and, and that sort of thing, lot-to-lot variability in those endotoxins and, and so on. We've seen that because the market's grown, because the manufacturers have got better at what they do. We've seen that lot-to-lot variability on the, the growth factor biologic side really get much better. It, it's still some, it can be an issue, but it, it's got much better as the market's developed. And in the the growth media, the HPL and the FCS side of things, what was great to see happen was that the, the manufacturers looked ahead we were having these conversations six or seven years ago. They understood that lot-to-lot variability, you know, as we moved into commercial arenas, they saw that lot-to-lot variability was, was going to be an issue, and they developed technologies that allowed us to make those lots bigger and to be able to, you know, stockpile materials so that we could do a phase one and a phase two trial with the confidence that the same material would be available when you move to phase three in commercial. So a couple of manufacturers, including what has become the the T-Live and part of BioLife, those guys, we were having those conversations seven and eight years ago. So we're lucky in that the the people that were there at the beginning of our story have grown and developed and, and survived. But it's having that foresight, players in the field having the foresight to understand what was going to come next, what the scale and the homogeneity of the materials was going to be required. And that's allowed companies like ours to grow and plan ahead.
0: Interesting, thank you. So, my next question is what are some of the consequences of not thinking ahead when developing your cell therapy?
1: I would say making the move to, to standardize reagents, I think the feeling in the community is it, it does lead to a smoother journey through the regulatory path. You know, maybe not in a phase one and phase two. But when you're in the room at phase three, there there are fewer questions to ask in and around the use of more standardized materials like HPLs, like GMP reagent. I I agree, Steve. I, I think one of the, you know, one of the impressive things that you
2: guys have got and really focused on is a real understanding of how your product works. You know, I think for a long time, people were always very focused on product or, you know, cell quantity rather than cell quality. And it was sort of, well, if we get enough cells and we put them in there, something might happen. And that's not really going to stick with the regulators, to be honest. And yeah. the the other flip side of that is you can't really begin to understand what impact your raw materials are having on your product because very high level, you can say, okay, well, yeah, that batch A expands as well as batch B. That's fine. We can select those lots. It's got a similar phenotype. But we know that when you dive below the cell savers, the product characteristics that probably are Responsible for the, the mechanism of action. We know that MSCs expanded differently, immunomodulate the immune system in a different way. We know that if you expand T cells in different ways, you can get more naive T cells versus more exhausted T cells. If you put them into an animal, you get totally different results. And this is just switching out your answering material. So I think, you know, I know what the guys at Orbson have done, um, you know, is really understand at a detailed level, okay, what, what is happening, how are the cells functioning in vivo. And what impact does any of the raw materials we put in there have on that manufacturing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the sensible way to look at it uh, is coming back to Steve's point earlier, that the more time you spend understanding your product's mechanism of action early on, the better you are able to find the the, the critical quality attributes that are modulated by changes in your GMP reagents in, in the soup. And we, we certainly made efforts early on to switch from fetal calf serums to, to HBL, and we looked at serum-free. We just found that the FCS was always going to be a, a regulatory issue later down the line that we were keen to avoid. And the regulators pointed us to that seven or eight years ago. And the serum-free, chemically divine space, when we were making that switch, just wasn't mature enough we were finding that our cells didn't work as well in serum-free, chemically-defined medium. So having assays in place that help you define your mechanism of action, it's understanding that this is a living medicine. So what you put in is going to have a very strong inputs and variables on what comes out of the cell in terms of potency and and batch-to-batch variability. Having reagents like standardized HPLs and GMP-grade biologics and investing in that early on really does allow you to avoid variables later down the line at phase two B and phase three.
0: My next question will be, what are the advantages and disadvantages of homebrew reagents and the advantages and disadvantages of outsourced reagents?
2: So I start there, Steve. I mean, I think at a very high level people assume there is a reduced cost on a mill-per-mill basis um, when you do, sort of manufacture your own reagents in-house. But I think what's often is overlooked is the total cost of goods to do that in terms of if you've got highly trained technical people that are manufacturing reagents rather than doing research and driving PD um, and driving your commercial product forward. That's one of the, the major things I think gets overlooked. I think the second thing is whilst they might meet a lot of the performance requirements at the, the research level. Can those materials meet quality expectations during your regulatory filings? Do they have a drug master file? Do you have a certificate of suitability with the, the PMDA if you want to sort of move your therapy into other geographical regions? Can you make it a sufficient scale for commercial manufacture? Can you get that lots lock lot comparability that we've just talked about without it continually affecting your product
1: manufacturing
2: every time you have to switch to a new batch?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I can probably take it from a, a, a more de- a developer standpoint, having been on the academic journey early on, there, there was quite a lot um, when we were starting out in in this business, everybody had their own homebrew, right? An academic formulation of media that would be a high impact publication because it made the cells behave 20% better or 20% more efficacious. And an academic in a phase one setting, you know, that's probably still the case. Everyone has their favorite conditioned media or combination of chemically defined medias that, that worked in preclinical models and maybe even at a phase one. And there's a switch that happens where you go from a phase one or a, a preclinical setting to going clinical. Um, and the thing to remember is when you're manufacturing a cell and gene therapy, almost every reagent has to be at almost drug standard, right? It has to be ready to be you know trace elements of that material have to be suitable for infusion into a human being so the homebrew format it, it, it really is a it's a it's a lovely way for, for academics to explore how their potential new product might work but there's very much a switch when you you know move to the clinic whereby these things and we've had to pass over you know really good looking medias in the early stages we had academic colleagues who developed re- reagents and developed uh homebrew a chemically defined media uh, and they're just not going to stand the test of time when you move from a phase one beyond and into a phase two, a, a phase three in commercial. So you need to understand that every reagent in your process has to be manufactured to a level that's suitable for review you know, by the FDA, by the EMA, by your regulators. And that's where homebrews that might give you that tiny bit of advantage fall away. And you need to work with large companies that have the specialty the the technical expertise to develop these reagents to gmp standards and the risk answering the second part of your question there is obviously you know you buy into these things at phase one phase two relationships that we've had with for example sexton biolife it's it's having that confidence that those reagent manufacturers and those technology developers are going to be there in seven to ten years time right you know, you want, you need the confidence that the the partnership is going to survive delayed phase two trials, slow recruitments, all of the, th- oh, you know, your investors don't really like this market right now. And then they come back. So when you, when you get to know um, developers of reagents like Sexton and Steve and those guys, you need to understand that that's a relationship that needs to be in existence for seven to 10 years. You're doing your phase one trial as we are at phase two trial, as we have been for the last couple of years. We need that product, that relationship to be there as we go all the way to market. So, and there are, you know, advantages and disadvantages to that. The advantages are, you know, you have the comfort level that things aren't going to change, but companies get bored, right? And technologies mm-hmm. disappear. So uh, there are risks, but I think the the pros of getting involved with large companies that have good technologies and good reagents far outweigh any academic homebrew condition media type event that may have been exciting when you got started
0: interesting and i don't know if there is one answer for this but how would you address that problem when when the the cell therapy industry is expanding so rapidly and people are coming and people are going how do you know who will be there in seven to ten
1: years you asked a question early on at conferences, at dinners, when you're sitting down with the Sexton's, the Miltenys, the Thermo's, it's, it's sitting down and, and, and having those conversations that, you know, oh, you have this really new, exciting product. You know, is it going to be there in five, 10 years time on the catalog? It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, looking people in the eye and then developing supplier agreements and having confidence in their supplier agreements. So from our perspective, having started 10 years ago, there are companies that are no longer here that we would have been friends with and worked with in 2010 to 2015. Um, So, you know, it's building relationships and and building confidence in certain suppliers. And you make mistakes. Sometimes it's like, ah, they've disappeared. But for the most part, you know, certainly when you get to this level and you're doing a phase two trial and you're planning phase three, the people in the companies that you're involved with understand the value of the relationship is not the phase two trial it's the market approval in seven to ten years time so they have a market understanding that they're not going to develop a product unless they can make it for 20 years
0: okay great um so my next question is how can the reagent manufacturer achieve reagent consistency to ensure reproducibility of therapeutics
2: so i think steve mentioned it there that there's sort of an expectation nowadays there are a lot of Answering materials are almost considered drug products, if you like, in terms of the the quality expectations. And so, a lot of it really stems from having a really established, robust quality management system. So strict procedural controls, i.e., GMP-like manufacturing systems. I think one of the other things is when groups like ourselves are developing these products during sort of the research and development phase, really starting to gather data again around you know which formulations have different impacts on different cell types i know a couple of years back we had to uh, move to having a irradiated human platelet lysate i think that was a really good experience moving away from a a non-irradiated product to an irradiated product once you add something like that to the process of course it's going to impact the product and so i think one of the things is you know not just saying okay well we had the standard product and we hit it with 35 kilogray and Okay, we've got the same product, but it's irradiated because we know it won't work the same. I think you've got to look to your suppliers to have a fully validated product. So if there's a method of viral reduction, ensure that there's a balance of quality regulatory expectations. So do you get that reduction in viral load, but also maintain that product performance? And again, it's going to be slightly different products. So understand the new product characteristics and how that new product impacts them. That's going to be important. I think sort of following on from that, I think one of the other things that is is often missed is having a relevance release assay. So we look towards sort of relevance growth verification assays. That hopefully you know groups like Orbs can use and say, okay, we have faith that this batch of product will perform in a in a similar manner to the other batch of product because we have data around the specific cell type that worked for us.
1: And at the developer side, that kind of works the same way. I mean, obviously, you know, we've been on this journey with Sexton BioLife when they made that switch from the original product Stimulate to the irradiated product Live, and we were with them on that journey. So we were able to, you know, assess. They were kind enough to include us in that uh, process, and uh, so that we could understand, you know, what that change in product spec or product treatment. Was doing to the, the the whole product, and and we allowed, allowed us to run our own in-house batch and post potency assays on you know their various lots. So it, it gave us confidence that the product you know was broadly similar, and it didn't change our our own uh, internal critical quality attributes.
0: Great, thank you. And this is my final question: How do you think reagents and components for cell and gene therapy will look in the future?
2: So I, I'll start. I think one of the, the things for me is packaging configurations are very much going to get aligned with what the cell therapy needs for closed system manufacturing and welding and um, sort of automation. So right now, there's still a lot of GMP grade reagents that come in vials or bottles that aren't amenable to welding or sterile connections. So I think that's one thing that needs to be looked at. I think in terms of fully defined chemically defined medias versus biologics i feel that autologous cell therapies they are going to continue to require that level of sort of mixed biological components platelet lysate serums etc allogeneic as steve said even those start materials have variability everybody eats differently drinks differently has different levels of exercise and so your start material could vary based on what time of day you take a blood draw but i think you know aloe Maybe they get to large purpose-built facilities with, with state-tank bioreactors and look more towards that large-molecule biopharma-type approach of defined medias, defined conditions. If you think about large-molecule pharma, incoming sort of QC testing is very well established. Morograph tests, pharma appeal test methods, I think they are there as an industry and we need to get there. So how do you qualify a complex biologic mixture? How do you identify the assays that are reproducible and quantifiable to to make sure reagents are what we need to allow for that manufacturing to be done in a consistent way? And I think it it really goes back to what we sort of talked about throughout is particularly for biologics and and any sort of reagents as well. Understanding the impact of that specific reagents on your product characteristics is really key. And then you can work with the supplier to ensure that specific batches and specific product meet the, the specifications you
1: need. I broadly agree with that. I think in the autologous space, because of the, the the vast array of donor-to-donor, autologous donor-to-donor variability, I think you're always going to require, if you like, a, a broader spectrum growth supplement to be able to capture that reproducibility of, of manufacture. And I, I, I agree that you know, in the allogeneic space, um, I'll differ slightly from Steve's answer, where I'd like to go. Is, is I'd like to understand, you know, within the HPL arena, what's the active component of that? So wh- as we get better and better at understanding our product, what you want to see from those manufacturers is, is that they're doing the same. So th- there's an active component in those platelet lysates. There's an there's a active component within those serra. So as we get better at understanding our mechanism of action and our quality attributes and our potency assays, and that the manufacturers are doing the same because obviously, you know, a platelet like serum uh, and those various products, there's going to be things in there that you want and you don't want. And right now we we understand what we like, but I think certainly in the immune and meta- metabolic space, you know, there's room to improve and there's there's room for the formats to become even more consistent and the lots to get bigger. So I, I look forward to seeing, you know, not just the, the cell and gene therapy efficacy space improve as it has done over the last decade, but also to see the reagent space improve as well. And I think groups like Sexton and Biolife, you know, are well-placed to do that. And we look forward to to working with them in the future. Thanks, Steve.
2: Yeah, I think just to add to, to what Steve said there, I think, you know, we're totally on board with that understanding which components of complex biological mixtures are, you know, important. And not just important across the board, important for your specific process. We're actually, one of the things we're undertaking with a couple of groups right now is starting to look at some sort of ProteoMix type assays to really look at different batches of platelet lysate and understand why certain batches work better for them. And so if we can get to that point where we have a specific assay that meets the need for orbs and therapeutics you're obviously gonna reduce that amount of testing on incoming materials in terms of lots of lot variability, et cetera. So being able to select based on a, a growth factor composition for a high level of whatever the growth factor may be, yeah. that's the way we sort of see it, it moving forward. So yeah, hopefully we
1: can get there as an industry at some point. Yeah, yeah. and just to say, I mean, like sort of the, the fact that things have improved over the last, you know, 10 years, companies coming in now have a, a far better range of choices than companies that would have started 10 years ago. So, the, you know, the reagent field, the GMP biolog- uh, GMP reagent field really is in a much healthier place, thanks to the R&D and the work that's gone in from the groups that have been there, the old-timers that have been, <laughs> been around for 10, 20 years. I'm not sure which so. one I am anymore, Steve. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, right now I feel like a youngster, but um, no, I think the the complex, you know, biological starting material and the complex hpl formats are only improving i think you know the future for more consistent and, and understandable cell and gene therapies you know really is you know looking bright thanks to the work that's gone in over the last you know decade or so um so i think we're we're in a good place to see you know new companies new technologies new therapies really accelerate at faster time frames and formats than they have done.
0: Great. Well, thank you both. It's been great chatting to you. Do you have any final comments for our listeners?
2: The only thing I would say is, as Steve said, you know, I think it's crucial to to have a close relationship. It's not a transactional relationship between a raw material manufacturer and a therapy developer. It's, you know, it really is a partnership. And as Steve said, it's going to be five, eight, 10 years of, of work together. Got to work very closely, understand the needs of a therapy developer, understand the limitations and scale, et cetera, that your raw material agent uh, provider can get to and yeah, move along together.
1: Yeah. No relationships, a developer's plan, everyone understanding what the plan is from, from their reagent side and the, the plans they have, the sustainability plans that they have in place, the reagent developers understanding the drug developers plans And understanding that our companies disappear as well. We don't get a good phase two. Then, you know, they've worked with a customer for seven or eight years. But the people, uh, they survive those relationships feels, you know, fairly dynamic. So it's nice to be in a, you know, an industry where you do have these good relationships and good understandings. And that's where these things are kind of built. So pick your partners early and well. That would be my advice.
0: Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed learning about when and how to switch media, the importance of trustworthy partners, and have hopefully gained a bit of an insight into the future of reagents. Check out the rest of the In focus if you'd like to learn more here on www.regmednet.com. Thank you very much for listening. See you soon. Bye.